This episode of Two Shrinks is brought to you by Calabash, engaging online professional development for health professionals. New talks this month include neurodevelopmental conditions in paediatric work, music therapy and its application to attachment, and time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy. For a limited time, Two Shrinks listeners can access a talk for free. Go to calabash.courses forward slash two shrinks pod. Calabash for all your professional development needs. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Hunter Mulcair. And this is a podcast all about psychology. I'm a psychologist who works with children and adolescents, mainly who have been through trauma. And Hunter's a psychologist who works with medically unwell people and supervises students on placement. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) You forgot you were going to jump in there and you're like, why is she pausing? (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, we like to get together and talk about psychological issues and disorders. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about when someone has a marked fear or anxiety about a specific object or situation. This could be fearing heights, flying, animals or injections. An intense fear about a specific situation or object is known as a phobia, which draws its name from Phobos, who was the god of fear and panic in Greek mythology. And we're doing this episode for a very important group of people students who are doing year 12 psychology and also particularly for their parents Mm -hmm. who are about to guide their year 12s through their final year of exam we know that phobias are one of the topics that are going to be on the end of year exam and so we thought we'd try and present a crash course on phobias and try and cover all the mains and bits and pieces that would be useful for you to know that's right I've been speaking to adolescents who've been struggling with all the terms and definitions in the Year 12 course, and so we thought we'd try and explain these, because a good psychologist should be able to explain difficult conversations easily to someone. So for this episode, we're not going to assume any kind of prior knowledge about psychology. Before we get started, Hunter, how did you go in VCE psychology? (laughs) Uh, I got good marks. I think I got A's. Mm. I got, so it was out of 50? Yeah. I got... 43. Okay. Yeah. I did not get the psychology prize. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not hanging on to that at and all. The, the guy who did get the psychology prize, I looked him up on APRA, not a psychologist. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> anyway, I'll keep his name out of it, but that's fine. Um, how'd you go? I think my lasting memory is of having to dissect a sheep's brain. What? Yeah. Is that biology though? You know, we were looking at like the the lobes and stuff. It was for year 11 psych. And yeah, we had to like detach the cerebellum and stuff like no. that. Yeah. Amazing. And, but I just, I really struggled with the texture and the smell and thought, do I have to do this <laughs> in uni? Because I want to be a psychologist, but I can't, I can't do this. No. Yeah. It was the same feeling I had about like, do we have to train a real rat or mouse? Yeah. And then the relief in discovering it was a computer program, not an actual. Nice, nice. I remember the orientation for Latrobe Uni was like, we used to be rats and stats. And we're like, stats, yes, rats, no. (laughs) Important distinction. 
So structure. We're going to start by talking about what a phobia is, talk about the biopsychosocial model of understanding a phobia, then we'll cover things that contribute to the development and maintenance of phobias. We'll run you through a crash course in some key concepts and then we'll finish with evidence-based interventions. Just for the fun of it, we're going to finish up with a bit of a chat about exams, some anecdotes and things about what happened in ours. Horror stories. <laughs> if you want to know more about us, you can go to our website, twoshrinkspod.com, or if you have any questions or feedback, you can email us at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. Uh, Amy, if any listener fails the exam mm. component of their psychology course, complaint emails go to threeshrinkspod <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Okay. So... Uh, look, we've been wanting to do this episode or an episode like this for a while because we are actually quite passionate about teaching stuff. So hopefully we're going to have some fun with it. But we are going to jam-pack a lot of information. Hopefully that's okay. Let's start off with a definition, right? I always like to define things. So a phobia. So as we, as we said at the top, it's a persistent and excessive fear of an object or situation that is not in fact dangerous. This irrational fear results in a strong desire to avoid phobic situations, even though people with phobias often recognize that this is not rational. Mm. So, you know, they might know that it's not rational to be afraid of frogs or something. Phobic people are so threatened by, you know, whatever the thing is, that they will go to almost any length to avoid the feared object or situation. They may be able to dismiss the fears when they're in the safe space but still believe that they're in real danger when they're actually faced with the thing that they're mm. so sort of cognitively you know or sort of abstractly they can be at home away from whatever it is that they're afraid of and and go well you know look i know it's irrational but then faced with it and they are flooded with fear mm. right so really what we're talking about is sort of extreme responses right Unlike other fears, right, these phobias are just disabling. They're not adaptive and they interfere with an ordinary life. Mm. Right? It's just different to being scared or afraid of something. So, so many people might say they've got a phobia. You know, oh, well, I'm afraid of snakes, right? I've got a phobia of snakes. But you could probably go into the reptile enclosure mm. at the zoo and, you know, you might just be a bit uncomfortable, right? Whereas a snake phobia would have an excessive anxiety reaction to seeing a snake. That, that anxiety might be so overwhelming that they might vomit, mm. right? Or that they would just like have intense distress or just like bolt out of there. Like, or not be able to go to the zoo. Yeah, or not, not be able to go into... Like, so it's not even about going into the reptile enclosure mm. where they're perfectly safe, but like not be able to go into the zoo. Or watch a movie that's got snakes in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so when I did undergraduate psychology... Mm. 1997 um the we watched a video and it was of a woman who had a frog phobia mm-hmm. and she'd gone through treatment and sort of showed it was successful and they showed her and they got her to try and touch a picture of a frog and she was terrified mm. and they the interviewer said can you say the word frog and she was like eventually she said it and it was, she was so uncomfortable mm. so really really extreme the poor thing so there's three classes of symptoms right physiological there's behavioral and there's subjective so physiological so that's your body physiology and so so amy if you ha- almost got knocked down by a car mm-hmm. 
what would happen in your body? Heart you racing. Out. Yep. Yep. Might be a bit of shaky. Yeah. Fast breathing. Feel kind of like tense and amped up. Yeah. Or you might feel weak. Yeah. Yeah. So those symptoms, like that intensity, mm. is is what can happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Behaviorally. People might flee. So people who've listened to this pod before all have heard us talk about fight or flight. So people might flee, run away, or they might freeze. Yeah. Just be completely rooted to the spot. And subjective, which is the internal, right? Which is so these are thoughts. So like, oh my God, you know, this thing might kill me. Mm. This frog this this frog is dangerous. Mm. Or it might be emotions about like shame or embarrassment or fear or mm. anger or something like that. And the reason that psychologists and the reason why you're learning about it in psychology, in year 12 psychology, is that this is a disorder that brings together a whole lot of really important psychological concepts. And it's um, and the treatment of it directly falls out of our understanding of how the phobias develop and are maintained. So it's, it's a really good specific learning example. But let's talk about the phobia categories because these are kind of fun. Mm. <laughs> Right. For a psychology nerd. <laughs> <laughs> if 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 you were listening to this pod, odds on that's 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 who you are. It's the demographic. That's it. <laughs> um, if you are not a psychology nerd and you are listening to this pod, please email us and tell us why. Okay. So there's four major specific phobia categories. Do you mm-hmm. know what they are off the top of your head? Um animals. Yep. Uh I'm thinking things like heights and stuff like that's so environmental. Yep. Oh, um, there'd be situations. Yep. Situations, yep. There's natural environment. Yep. Oh, so like storms and things like that. Yep. Yep. And there's blood injection or injury. Oh, so like body stuff. Yeah. And then there's like other. Okay. So let's test you. <laughs> Astrophobia. Oh, that feels like stars, expansion of the universe. Why am I going astro? <laughs> this is going to kill us. Okay. Yeah. So that's fear of thunder and lightning. There's yeah. hydrophobia, which is fear of water. water. Dendrophobia. Trees? Yep, trees, fear of trees. In the animals, we've got arachnophobia. Spiders. Yep. Ophidiophobia, which is snakes. Mm -hmm. Cyanophobia, which is fear of dogs. Equinophobia. Horses. Nay, nays, yeah. Yeah. Um, What are chickens? I don't don't have chickens. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Bok, bok, phobia. I don't know. Um, uh, Claustrophobia. Yep. So, 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 yeah, so situations, so, situations of claustrophobia. So that's something you come across quite a lot. Mm. Acrophobia, which is fear of heights. Aerophobia, fear of flying. Mm. Glossophobia, which is... Fear of shiny things. No. It is the second most feared thing. There's a great Seinfeld skit about it. Oh, this is killing me because <laughs> I... Fear of public speaking. Yeah. Blood injection injury. So mm-hmm. that would be trypanophobia, fear of injections, mm-hmm. and dentophobia, fear of dentists. And then there's like an other category, which I, this, I'm going to butcher this one, but it's arachibuterophobia, which is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Love it. And there is a website where you can go and view like the oh, long list. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, so the, the peanut butter one is actually to do with a fear of choking. Yeah. So like if you drill down it. Well. Mm. I saw a thing actually, a study that said speaking in front of a crowd is considered the number one fear of the average person. I found that amazing. Number two was death. <laughs> death is number two. 
This means to the average person, if you have to be at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. All of these are a bit abstract. And you can imagine you can live a lot of your life by avoiding phobia. So, like, if you've got a fear of flying, you mm. can just avoid flying, yeah. right? But they can cause a lot of distress mm. and negative impacts on someone's life. What's curious, or, or as a psychologist and quite complicated, is when someone has a phobia and then they're forced into a situation that confronts that phobia. Mm. So I work in a hospital and if someone's got a phobia of injections and then they develop a problem like cancer, right, which requires, you know, weekly chemotherapy for three months, right, and blood transfusions because they get anemic, Mm. then that could be a big problem. If they've got a fear of... Fear of injections. Injections, yeah. Or if they've got claustrophobia and they're required to do regular CT scans, which requires them to go through an enclosed space Mm. or MRIs. Yeah. So that can prove really problematic and prevent people from actually getting treatment Mm. and like life-saving treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So so, um, do you have uh, kid examples? Um, Heights is a pretty common one. And that gets in the way more socially. Like if you think about the amount of kid parties or things like that that are at places where there's climbing Mm, and mm. like bounce or things like that where you're flung up into the air where you're in spaces without handrails, all Mm. of that sort of stuff. So what ends up happening is they get embarrassed at birthday parties or things that they're not able to do. Or they don't go. Or they they stop getting invited to things because everyone goes, well, that kid's going to freak out. Yeah. And so it ends up having sort of social ramifications. School camps they struggle with because there's often high ropes courses, things like that. So it kind of gets in the way of those bonding activities with their peers. Yeah. What is also curious is that the prevalence and types of phobias is not constant. They're not uniform across and sort of randomly scattered of like, well, you know, there's X amount in the population and it's just randomly latches onto weird things, mm. right? And the pattern of this stuff starts to give clues to what factors might influence the development of a phobia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so phobias exist across cultures, but not at the same rates. So in the United States, there's a prevalence of about 7 to 9% of the population. Okay. Europe, lower, so about 6%. And rates are lower still in Asian, African, and Latin American countries. So mm. 2 to 4%. Okay. Which is really interesting. The number of people who have phobias changes across the lifespan. Mm-hmm. It's not constant. So about 5% of kids, so yep. 1 in 20, would have one. And this increases to about 16% of adolescents, mm. so 13 to 17-year-olds. And then the prevalence drops to in older adults, 3 to 5%. Hmm. Right? They typically develop in childhood or adolescence, and the majority prior to age 10, mm-hmm. median age about 7 to 11. Yeah. But they can emerge later in life. Childhood phobias can wax and wane, but if a phobia lasts until adulthood, likely the person's going to have it long term. Yeah. The topic of phobias by age group, it varies, right? So, so when you develop it. So, well, so older people are more likely to endorse natural environment phobias and phobias about fears of falling, mm. phobias about falling. Phobias about specific situations seem to develop later than natural environment, animal or blood injection phobias. Okay. Women are more likely. So two to one. Mm-hmm. Two women to every one man with phobia. But difference according to type of phobia. So animal, natural environment, and situational phobia is mainly experienced by women. Right? Blood 
Well, this one surprised me. Blood injection injury phobia is roughly equal across genders. Hmm. I would have anecdotally said that men <laughs> like have a bigger <laughs> problem. I think men more frequently faint with injections. Yeah. I certainly used to have a problem with that. Yeah. So there's clearly some processes at play here and why someone develops it mm. and why someone doesn't. So Amy, you're going to take us through how psychologists piece it all together. I am. Talk to us about it. I'm going to take you through a case study okay. of someone that a lot of us should be familiar with, I think, Ron mm. Weasley Ron. out of Harry Potter. Yep. Yep. Little red-headed wizard, Harry's bestie. Uh, so a lot of people might know from the movies and the books that Ron has arachnophobia, a fear of spiders. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to talk through the kind of thinking process. That, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Your mind immediately goes to the massive one. Yep. I want to talk through the kind of thinking process that... And, and he imagines it with the, the roller skates on when it's the yes. progress. That's it. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're on the right page. So psychologists, when they're trying to work out what's going on for someone, we do what we call formulation. We try and piece together all of the bits and pieces to make sense of how something's developed over time oh, and how we're going to work with God, it. God, we love a model. We love a Boxes model. Boxes and arrows. Yes, as many as possible. Or maybe this, dot points as well. This one's got a few. Yep. So what's the model? The model is the biopsychosocial model. Okay. So biological, social, and psychological. Okay. And all of those things mix together to create a psychological issue or to make it more likely that that's going to come about. Mm -hmm. It's never just that you have those thoughts and then you're anxious. There's always other mixes to it. Yeah. So you're sort of saying that there's a biological element. Yeah. There's a psychological element and there's also a social social element element to a phobia, but also like it could be to do with like depression. Exactly. Any Or trauma or something like that. Mm, Exactly. And then we map these across four different areas. So predisposing, which is what comes before the issue. So the factors that make you vulnerable to something developing. Then we go to precipitating, which is what happened right before. Mm -hmm. So what triggered the thing? Yep. Perpetuating, what keeps it going? And protective, what is helping, what buffers you against it? So I wanted to talk about a physical example because... So I'm laughing because any of my trainees yeah uh, like i like hammer my trainees about like the four p's yeah yeah <laughs> one after the other and then do you do the grid of like mapping into biopsychosocial for each no, one no no i don't do that our poor students listening are expected to do bits of that kind Amazing. of mm, no. break it into each category yeah no. so i want to talk through a physical example before i jump into ron because sometimes i feel like psychological aspects can feel a bit intangible yeah yeah so i thought maybe a physical example would illustrate what each of those categories are okay first so say you're predisposed to asthma you might be predisposed because you have a family history of it Mm -hmm. you're more likely to to get it when you're a kid you develop a bad respiratory infection and that triggers or precipitates your first bout of asthma Mm -hmm. then each spring the blossoms and the grass start coming up and it keeps on triggering episodes. It keeps on perpetuating the asthma that you've got. But because of your family history, your parents pick up that it's asthma really quickly and they start getting you medical help and that then protects you and helps buffer future events. So that's how it works. You kind of break it into each one of those aspects. So the the predisposing is the... Family history. Family history. The precipitating is the initial... Is the initial respiratory infection. And then the perpetuating is living in an environment where there's pollens and and whatnot. But you've got medicine 
yeah. buffer. So we think about Ron. He's a character who we see having a fear of spiders over and over again, mm-hmm. but it really comes to the fore in the second book where he has to face the massive spider. So Ron's biologically predisposed to anxiety thanks to some of the survival mechanisms that Hunter spoke about. So our brain is always going to be biased towards survival, the fight, flight, freeze responses that make sure we live another day. We know that these survival mechanisms are fed by experience and they begin to develop from when we're in utero. So Ron was born during a time when his parents were under significant stress from Voldemort and the Death Eaters. (laughs) I'm going way back. (laughs) But then also... As he's going through his child, late childhood and entering adolescence, he's regularly under threat. His system is primed to go into fight flight. Mm-hmm. He's on alert. Psychologically, he's also been predisposed to have anxiety because of his neuroticism. He's quite an anxious person. He worries about things. And we, I would say maybe also like parental inattention because of a large family. Nice. Yeah, yeah exactly. Precipitating. We know that most phobias develop in childhood, as you spoke about, and Ron gives us an example in the books about a social precipitating factor. I just don't like the way they move. Hermione giggled. It's not funny, said Ron fiercely. If you must know, when I was three, Fred turned my my teddy bear into a dirty great spider because I broke his toy broomstick. You wouldn't like them either if you'd been holding your bear and suddenly it had too many legs and... He broke off, shuddering. For many of us, but especially at the formative age of three, seeing something comforting turn frightening would have a lasting impact. Moving on, could to you pe- imagine that? Oh, like, it'd be could, terrifying. Could you imagine, like, like, like you you would never want to hold a teddy bear ever again. You wouldn't trust anything. No. no. Perpetuating. We don't know the state of Ron's GABA system, and we're going to talk about GABA further on. Spoiler. But, yeah, I know, but we can assume with such a pronounced physiological response that he has to spiders, that there's likely some GABA dysfunction going on. So I'm going to explain it a little bit more, but that could be perpetuating the reaction. I also wonder about stigma. His friends and family mock him outright over and over again about spiders and dismiss his fear response. He's not likely to treat it as a problem. I don't think that they dismiss it. They they, 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 they know it's there and they play on it. Yeah, they amplify it. They that, well, they make him feel like he's. I wouldn't say they dismiss it. I would say that. What about make... Harry in the forest? You know that clip that we watched. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like shut up, shut up. Harry, I don't like this. Harry, I don't like this at all. Shush. He's dismissive. Right. Whereas, whereas I, I would say that Ron's family they mock, mock him, him, and that that undercuts his belief that he can cope or they exacerbate the fact that he's got a fear, mm. right? And so that makes him feel worse about his fear and that, and so then he doesn't feel like he can cope with it. Yeah. Right? And so that would be a perpetuating factor. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't have that support around him about it. He doesn't have encouragement to deal with it, to cope with it, to get help. Yeah. Whatever. But also he doesn't... So one of the other things that perpetuating... Sorry, I'm interrupting. It's your segment, <laughs> but I love formulation. I know. Um, is is that he doesn't have any good anxiety management strategies? Yeah. Right. So he doesn't know how to calm himself when he gets distressed. No. No. He also has to deal with Aragog, which floods his system and re-traumatizes him as well. It's not. It yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. brings up the crisis all over again and reinforces that spiders are scary. So so if you're not familiar with Harry. 
Harry Potter and Ron, they go into the for- forbidden forest <laughs> and they confront a like 30 foot spider. It's huge. Anyway, continue. It's, yeah, its legs are bigger than them. Double three times the length of them. Yeah. Um, we also know from Ron's initial responses to everything at Hogwarts that he has a tendency towards catastrophic thinking. He, you know, putting aside the real danger from Aragog, the rest of the time when spiders are a worry for Ron, he's not actually in danger. He's imagining the worst possible outcome. That's kind of keeping his fear going as well. Protectively, apart from their response to his phobias, he does have a good social system. He's got people around him who care about him. Mm -hmm. He's got those relationships. And by mid-adolescence, he's got a taster of exposure therapy with the bugget and the spider and the transforming it into something different yeah he's also pretty resilient like it'd be entirely understandable if he was an absolute mess by the end of the first year at hogwarts with everything he's been through he keeps on kind of facing things so with that in mind all of those pieces fitting together what we want to do is break down all of the key concepts into further detail are you going to kick us off with yeah, classical so, conditioning so so amy's going to give you an idea about the four p's how we formulate as psychologists and then also the biopsychosocial model right so what i'm going to focus on is psychological theories that are likely at play in phobia development and phobia maintenance so this stuff might seem a bit dry and a bit abstract but it will actually like it'll, it'll all start to come together okay so you might have heard of classical conditioning. Anyway, so classical conditioning is a form of learning where a reflex response is associated with a new stimuli. So what this means is that something you not norm- you wouldn't normally have a response to becomes paired with a physiological response. So the classic case of it was this researcher called Ivan Pavlov and his dogs. So for humans and for animals, seeing or smelling food triggers off salivation so like saliva production in your mouth so does incidentally thinking or saying the word salivation yeah i know (laughs) so also like when when we talked about itching one time on the podcast and then like and everyone like there's feedback from people saying yeah their heads started itching or if someone talks about lice anyway Mm -hmm. so okay so ivan he started by ringing a bell and then measuring the saliva production of a dog there's no like ringing a bell didn't make the dog have excess saliva production right Mm -hmm. just didn't do anything what he then would do was he would present food to the dog and ring a bell at the same time and because he was presenting food there'd be an increase in saliva and so he did this multiple times and then he rang a bell but didn't present any food and what happened was he found that the dog had an increase in saliva Hmm. because he'd rung the bell and at this point, what you would say is that conditioning has occurred. So he then kept ringing the bell, no food, right? And what happened was the saliva production reduced because mm-hmm. the dog learned um, automatically that this wasn't, you know, wasn't a thing anymore. And so that's called extinction, right? So there's conditioning and then there's extinction of that conditioning. So, so this all can seem a bit abstract, right? And I'm going to use some big words here, but basically many involuntary autonomic nervous system responses are paired with new stimuli via classical conditioning. And so basically, so an autonomic nervous system response is like salivation Mm. or it might be sweating or it might be something like that. So something that... Heart racing. Heart racing. Something that is 
a biological response, but is not under conscious control. Right. right? So you can't make yourself salivate. You can't make yourself sweat. Yeah. Right. You have to do something or something has to happen. Right. And and so what what they think happens in phobias is that uh, like a fear response gets triggered at some point by something that's non-threatening, mm-hmm. right? So when there's actually when there's no actual danger present. So some people can with a phobia can trace back to a time when they were frightened, or, or injured, or in pain, and exposed to a feared object mm-hmm. or a feared like so the the thing that that makes them afraid. In they were co- attacked by a dog. They were attacked by a dog, or they were injured and hurt by something and then say a frog was nearby Mm -hmm. or they were they became distressed in an enclosed space yeah and the the theory would be that then they if they got into an enclosed space it would trigger the same fear response Mm -hmm. even though they're not actually in danger yeah i work i have worked extensively with cancer patients psychologists in a cancer unit right so cancer is a life-threatening condition and one of the, the treatments that they have is a thing called chemotherapy. So they get someone will frequently get injected with drugs and that kills off the cancer cells but also kills off a lot of other cells in your body and that can create nausea and vomiting, mm-hmm. right? Not much fun. Mm-hmm. And prior to the development of good medications that stopped people vomiting, right, I read about cases of classical conditioning where patients would see a hospital and vomit, hmm. right? Because their experience of having this treatment in that hospital was, you know, they'd go and go in, get chemotherapy, and they'd be horribly unwell, mm. like they'd be spewing up. Yeah. And a case of classical conditioning was that they would see the hospital and just spew hmm. or feel nauseous. Yeah. So... I'll give you some psychology terms for the for the listeners who are about to do your exam. So there's unconditioned stimulus. So in this case, I want you to think of this unconditioned stimulus. So this is the thing that causes, will actually cause the problem, right? Mm. So the unconditioned stimulus would be chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. The unconditioned response to chemotherapy is nausea and vomiting. So a neutral stimulus is something that doesn't provoke a response. So in which case, seeing the hospital, yeah, right? But over time seeing the hospital becomes the condition stimulus for the patient and triggers the condition response of vomiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Then we go a step further, a thing called stimulus generalization. So this is that the fear would then extend to things similar to the conditioned stimulus. So the conditioned stimulus is seeing the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so this might generalize then to other buildings or yep. perhaps other medical buildings. It's so like a GP. Like a GP's practice. Yeah. Yep. So apparently phobic people have on average three feared situations or triggers. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a thing called, you know, so we talked about extinction. So it might kind of go away. Yeah. Right. So you might then go to the hospital multiple times, not get sick and you might have extinction. Hmm. Right. Um, but, you can have spontaneous recovery. So that would be when the condition response comes back after a period of rest. So say the patient keeps going to the hospital weeks after completing chemo, experiences attending, not unwell from medicine, the urge to vomit might stop. But then what happens with cancer stuff is that they then would have three or six months go past, 
no contact with the hospital and then come back in for a review, mm-hmm. right? They might go back in, not have attended for a while and feel the same urge and that would to vomit. Yeah. That would be the spontaneous recovery. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of some other relatable examples. Yep. <laughs> driving. So mm-hmm. maybe this is for more parents, but driving, seeing a McDonald's sign and salivating. <laughs> Particularly if you're like it's around dinner time. Yep. Um, uh, school bell and fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really getting into all of yours tonight, aren't we? Yeah, that's not. Um, and uh, for any, um, you know, 16, 17 year olds, particular types of alcohol and feeling the urge to vomit. Watermelon cruiser. Watermelon yeah. cruiser. So <laughs> classically, the thing that you first ever vomited on from drinking too much, um, tequila, um, that that will be something that you will struggle to drink mm. because it'll, it'll trigger a, an urge to vomit. Yeah. Right? And so, so food associations are a really great thing about classical conditioning. Mm. So... And then what I use for my clients, Amy. So, Amy, have you ever gotten sick from eating dodgy, like, uh, food court food or, like, mm-hmm. dodgy food somewhere? Yeah. Can you give me an example? What yeah. comes straight to mind? Pork bun. Pork bun, right. Yeah. And, like, so you might have had some gastro symptoms or yeah. something like that. You don't have to share it. Um, <laughs> did you feel like you would go back and eat the same one from the same place. No, no. never. So you would avoid it, yep. right, from one pairing, yep. right? And would you eat the same thing from another place? Very unlikely. Very unlikely. But, yep. like, if you think about it, probably it's probably another fine. place is probably not, it's, it's probably fine, yep. right? And that's a single learning instance. Mm. That's a really powerful one for people because that because it's a survival thing. Mm. And so that's why that's really, really, like it's a, a really a, a strong paired association. Yeah. Can I give you some more theory? Sure. Okay. So, so that's classical conditioning mm-hmm. happens to you, the person. Sure. Right? You can also have vicarious or mm-hmm. secondhand conditioning. So this is you observing someone else's reaction to a stimulus and learning to respond the same way. So, if you grow up in a city, mm. right, you don't see a snake, you don't see sharks, you don't really hang out in caves. Yeah. Right? But thanks to movies like Jaws, mm. or the, uh, like there was a movie called Piranha, and it was like piranhas <laughs> like in this, yep. in this river, terrifying. Yeah. They stimulate fears about sharks mm. or, or things. So like, it's like social learning. Like mm. we were sort of. It's like that whole thing about like. When you're a kid, you really expect that quicksand's going to be a threat in your life when you're an adult. <laughs> is that just me? Yeah. No, no, that's it. <laughs> like that's the it. amount of movies with quicksand is, you think it's going to be something you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. And there's that fear of something that you've never had any contact with. Yeah. You know, like Indiana Jones, hmm. you know, uh, for the older listeners, he's like, I hate snakes. Yeah. Or, there's a big snake in the plane, Jack! Oh, that's just my pet snake, Reggie. I hate snakes, Chuck. I hate them. Come on, show a little backbone, will you? You know, and he, and he has this strong reaction. Mm. You know, he's this tough guy being afraid of it. Oh, and so we sort of learn by osmosis or vicarious secondhand conditioning, mm. right? I just recently went to Queensland. Yeah. And I went to the island where Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, mm-hmm. was stabbed yeah. in the chest by a stingray. Mm. And I was actually on the island. Um, like someone said, oh, you know, 
this is the island this where, is where Steve Irwin actually died. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that's more. But this was in 2006 that he died. Yeah. And the tour guides were at pains to state that stingrays are, by mm. and large, safe. Like three people had ever died yeah. in Australia from, from stingrays. It might have been worldwide mm. since the 50s. And Steve was one of them. Yeah. Right. But what was the cultural response to it? Mm. Stingrays are dangerous. Yeah. Right. Um, and even when we were there, people were like, oh, stingray. Mm. Right. So that, that, that's like a social mm. thing. So we can, a little know, bit like sharks. Yeah. Sharks. Yeah. Like Jaws, for example, mm. is a great, you know, the, the, the movie Jaws. More commonly with vicarious learning is watching family members. So, you know, if we think about the biopsychosocial model, this is like all the, the, the psychological and the social, right? Mm. Watching family members be afraid of something. Yeah. So this can be do with foods, animals, situations, whatever. Mm-hmm. Your parent might be afraid of spiders. You see them avoid spiders or they become highly distressed when exposed to a spider. Yeah. Then you might pick up a fear of spiders. All right, I'm just going to take a pause. <laughs> I'm going to talk about operant conditioning in a second. So I've just talked about classical conditioning. Yeah. I've talked about vicarious learning. Sorry, listeners. I'm going to gas bag on a little bit more. Opera and conditioning. God, that mm-hmm. sounds like a boring name, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> but it's kind of fun. Well, <laughs> It's really not. <laughs> this is one of those things that's like, there's a whole bunch of psychology that's dry, but really helpful. Yeah. And a lot of psychology, I feel like, is getting past that bit to the bit where it actually applies and... Yep. Where you can see the the relevance and the application. Yeah, look, a hundred percent right. So just please just stick with us, right? So operant conditioning. Okay, so a phobia can develop from a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. So you get bitten by a dog, and then that generalizes to all dogs, right? Evidence suggests that is not that common, mm. right? So that it's more about it's not one single traumatic event that causes a phobia, but it's more exposure to lots of frightening experiences and exposure to social learning Mm. right over time you can also have a phobia without having this classical conditioning type event generally what they know is that you're more likely to be phobic about something known to be dangerous so Mm. you're more likely to be have a phobia about a snake or a spider than say a frog Mm. or a butterfly what's interesting is why doesn't someone's fear go away over Mm. time Right, so if you have a negative event with 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 a dog, for example, mm. like why does that fear persist? Right, so it's just one off, mm. right? And this is when we get into a discussion about operant conditioning, and particularly what was called negative reinforcement. If you get attacked by a dog, it's scary. You might see another dog next week, and you might have a fear response. So, what might your natural reaction be to that? Avoid the dog. Avoid the dog, right? And so what would happen to your fear response when you avoid the dog? You feel better because you've avoided it in yeah. the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes down. So you might then learn to get away from that fear response, hmm. right? You might avoid all dogs. Yeah. Right? And as a result, you would never learn that dogs are by and large safe. Hmm. Right? And the fear would be maintained. The fear response would be maintained. The association. Because it's like preserved in this yeah. time capsule. Yeah. So in that, the avoidance of the dog would be what is called negatively reinforced. Right? The behavior is strengthened because an unpleasant consequence is removed, which makes you more likely to repeat the behavior. Mm. Okay, so I know that sounds a bit 
confusing, but negative reinforcement is part of what is called operant conditioning. So negative is about taking something bad away. Yes. Yeah. So, and it's re- and reinforcement means that when you avoid, you mm. mean, it means you're more likely to keep doing it. Yeah. Right. Whereas, uh, whereas punishment's a bit different, right? So, which means like, when you're punished, you stop doing the thing, mm. right? Yeah. Was, so there was a psychologist called Skinner and he would train rats and pigeons to do a series of behaviours by giving them food, mm. right? And he made operant condition, conditioning famous. Negative reinforcement gets confused with punishment. Negative reinforcement is if you do the behaviour and the negative event ends, so you're more likely to do it, as mm. I said before. So for parents listening, you might decide or have a rule that nothing good happens after midnight and so you go home at midnight so you stop drinking then. so you stop drinking and then you avoid right the the negative consequences Mm. of staying up late yeah right and so and so and if that happens right then you'd be more likely you might wake up the next morning go huh you know, for some reason, you might go home early and you're like, oh, actually, I felt good. All mm. right, maybe I'll try that next time. Yeah. Right. And so it'd be negatively reinforced, right? Punishment is any event that follows a response that decreases the likelihood of it happening again. So basically, you're doing an action and the negative event starts, right? Mm. Think riding on a train with that ticket and getting a fine. Yeah. Right. Or speeding and getting a fine. You're less likely to do that again. Mm. Right. So we've talked about negative reinforcement, talked mm-hmm. about punishment. In operant conditioning, you can have positive reinforcement. So that's an action that makes you more likely to do it again. So you add something because yeah. it's positive. I always think about like, remember it based on maths because I am a nerd. Mm-hmm. But like negative numbers, positive numbers. Yep. You negative, you're taking away something. Yep. Positive, you're adding something. Yep. So, so classic one is... If you put your hand up in class to get your teacher's attention, you're more likely to get the response you want from the teacher than, say, if you yell out your teacher's name. Yeah. So the teacher's going to look at you and go, okay, you got your hand up, you're behaving socially the way we want you to do it, and so you get the response. And so the teachers would then be training their students Mm. to act in a particular kind of way. Yeah. One of my psych textbooks talked about this, right? And so... Like, if you want to talk about psych nerds, right? Um, I think it was Zimbardo. Mm. I'm not sure. They, the university psych students would, every time their teacher was on one side of the room, mm. they would pay attention, mm-hmm. positive reinforcement, yep. right? And when they were on the other side of the room, they would um, act up and kind of be noisy. And so after a while, they trained their lecturer... <laughs> To stand on one side of the room and fiddle with the blinds. <laughs> that's great. So, the, and that's operant conditioning, mm. right? Positive reinforcement probably not likely to play a big role in phobias. Like, it's all about negative reinforcement mm. and avoiding. It's all that. about taking away the bad thing. Yeah, it's all about avoiding the thing that you're afraid of. Yeah, and that maintains the fear. Yeah, but one way of positive reinforcement might play a role is that. If someone's avoidance of a situation like a dog or a swimming or something is then positively reinforced by family members. So a person could get positive feedback for avoiding from their mum or something. Oh, mm-hmm. good. You didn't go near the dogs. Yeah. You're always afraid of dogs. Yeah. Right. And so that would be positively enforcing the fact that they can't cope with it. Yeah. Or that it's dangerous. Yeah. Right? And so the resultant lack of motivation 
and confidence to try and expose themselves to the, the thing they're afraid of, the feared stimulus, less likely to do it. So, and I can say this as someone who's treated phobias, this, is a, this can be a real problem in treatment. So you mm. have to tackle like a family member's attitudes. Like you'd be saying to the, to the family member, we're going to be exposing this person to the feared thing and they can do it. Yeah. And, and the, the parent or the, or the partner might be like, oh, I don't think they can do it. And like, no, no they, they can. can. You need to not be saying that. Yeah. And you might even be that direct. Yeah. So I'm going to hopefully shut up for a bit. <laughs> Should we take a little break? Let's take a little break and then we'll come back and I'm going to talk about some brain stuff. Yeah. All right. You're on two string spot. Hope you're enjoying yourselves. See you soon. But as we try to widen make more consistent our description of what we see as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations <laughs> cheers cheers thank you for gin mm. we're drinking citrus and black cardamom gin mm. From the Mobius Distilling Company. As in strip? Mobius strip? What's that? Oh, you know. Oh, hang on. Is, it, is that, that the little graphic just here? Yeah. Yeah, it's like It's a, got the one-sided. It's, it's a twisted strip where it ends up that you, if you follow it around, you are on the one side, even though it looks like it should be two sides. Yeah, right. There's a daggy joke about the Mobius strip. Oh, my God. Please don't say it. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Moby's Distilling Co. Thank you. Well, we, we just bought it, but they're not sponsoring <laughs> us. But yeah, you're making it sound like they sponsored us, and actually, you just tried it and liked it. At two shrinks pod. <laughs> this is the break. We like to give you all information about where you can find us, where you can find out more about the show. Mm-hmm. You can go to twoshrinkspod.com for stuff about us and about past episodes. You can find all sorts of weird and wonderful psychological topics on there you can contact us on twitter two shrinks pod mm-hmm. and email us two shrinks pod at gmail.com yeah we love hearing from people and if there's another topic that you want us to cover get in touch and and ask yeah we either add it to our list or we sometimes just go yeah let's do that one next yeah that's it we We're are pretty spontaneous Fairly, fairly lucid out around our planning. We're malleable. Yeah. <laughs> we usually start planning one one episode and start talking about the next episode and fail to finish off yeah, the, so the production of, of one. Give that's, it a go. That's because we're psych nerds and we do this because we enjoy talking about psych rather than promoting a book or, or whatever it is. Hmm. Um, but yeah, if you do check out our website, we have uh, a list of episodes in order, but then we also have... Uh, Lovely maintained uh, page that Amy does on at least by topic. Mm. So if you're looking for a particular thing, and we've done lots of, if you've not come across this before, it's the first time listening, we've done a whole lot of episodes on personality disorders. We've done some episodes where we talk about pop culture and psychological diagnoses. Things Star like Wars. Star Wars, Harry Potter. Breakfast um, Club. The Breakfast Club, a few things like that. So we have some fun with that. And occasionally we also guest on other podcasts. Mm. So, um, yeah, if you uh, like what we say and you do a podcast, let us know. (laughs) If we can fit it in our busy schedules, we will. (laughs) 
Shall we get back to it? Yeah, let's get back to it. So, Amy, you're going to talk about the brain, and I'm going to continue having a glass of gin. (laughs) (laughs) Is this going to be interrupted by you slurping and the clink of the ice in the glass? And now I can't do it on command. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I splashed it on myself. It was a very enthusiastic clinking there for me. All right, let's go. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to talk about two brain-based things. The first one is GABA dysfunction. So crash course on neurotransmitters which I think brings fear into everybody's hearts, but we got this. I, so yeah, I, um, I like totally ace psychopharmacology, so I like, I love this stuff. <laughs> I'm such a dick. Hunter was essentially making me give him a pop quiz while I was writing this, wanting to give me the answers of the next sentence that I was going to say before I gave them. I don't so. even remember that, but that sounds like me. Yeah. Okay, go. All right. So... Neurotransmitters are the chemical messengers that carry messages between the cells in your brain. So they can be inhibitory or excitatory. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, which means that it calms shit down. So its function is to reduce the nerve sensitivity to messages. Think of this like blocking someone on Snap, but not Insta. It doesn't stop them contacting you entirely, but it reduces their options. That is such a modern thing. Right, yep. <laughs> Do you need a moment? No, no, it's fine. Continue. Yeah. So by slowing all the messages down, GABA helps to reduce stress, anxiety. It makes it easier for us to sleep without all these messages coming through. The other part of this equation is glutamate. Glutamate's all about keeping the messages going. It likes to stir things up. It wants to open up all the ways to communicate. It's the neurotransmitter equivalent of drunk texting everyone on your phone. For us to function properly, we need enough messages to get through, but not so many that we're flooded. So how does this apply to phobias? Essentially, the balance of people who are predisposed to phobias is out of whack. The theory is that they don't have enough GABA to calm shit down, so the glutamate takes over and just floods through their system and makes them anxious. Okay, right. So let's just wind back there for a second. So yeah. neurotransmitters, you've got two neurons, mm-hmm. right? two neuron cells. That communicate with one another so, with chemicals. And, and the way that cell A communicates cell B is by releasing a neurotransmitter mm-hmm. and that goes to the to next, the next cell. one. Okay. And it passes along like a chain. Yep. Okay. And then we've got GABA, mm-hmm. and then which is inhibitory. And you said there's glutamate, which is excitatory. Yeah. So if you're studying and you're wanting to try and remember well, like which one's which, Glutamate has an E in it, mm-hmm. and that means it's excitatory because it's excitatory Cause starts with an E, e. right? Yeah. So that means the GABA is the other one. Inhibitory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is like that was like locked in my brain. Yeah. Like, Somehow it stayed in there. It stayed in there. Yeah. So you're saying that if you've got a phobia, mm-hmm. that inhibitory system is it's not working. Down. It's not working enough. as well, and so yeah. there's too much excitatory, which means you're, you're like anxious. Ron. Yeah. Ron Weasley. You're on edge. Okay. Yeah. Which also then connects with the stress response system, which is the other brain bit that I want to talk about. So stress responses are those fight, flight, freeze responses Mm -hmm. that are all about survival. So they're universal physiological responses to stress and they keep us alive. They're treated as the most important system in our brain. If there's a choice between thinking and survival, our brain's going to pick survival every time. We don't have a choice in it. 
it just happens instantly it's really fast it's reflexive it's speedy and there's nothing about logic so if you're thinking about that example of crossing the road and a car speeding past you if you had to think about weighing up your options going oh I could jump backwards or oh maybe I've got enough space or what if I just step this way or maybe I'll just like wave my arm Mm. and say stop by the time you thought through all those options it would be too late we need to have a system that's going to step in and make us jump back before we've even registered that there's a car there and that's what this system is about it's about movement quick survival Mm -hmm. driven by adrenaline right yeah so when this system is when this response is brief and it's in a response to real danger it's it's really helpful you know respond quickly and then we take a deep breath we might feel a bit shaky we might feel all of those things that come up when you're in the middle of an anxiety attack or a phobic response where you're agitated heart racing all that kind of thing and then we calm ourselves and we go back to baseline and we go about living Mm -hmm. our lives Mm -hmm. the problem is when it goes on too long or happens too often, yeah. or it's triggered by things that aren't dangerous, like yeah. a frog. Frog, or you know, the cute boy or girl who sits down next to you unexpectedly, who you've got a crush on. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and then, and yeah. then there's a fear response triggered. <laughs> Is there something you need to talk about, Hunter? <laughs> you <don't> just did. <laughs> when that happens, it's distressing. I'm thinking about our teenage lives. <laughs> yep, totally. So, when the fight flight part of the stress response system is the one that we see most often in phobias so that's the part that makes us agitated sweaty heart heart rating all of that sort of thing people feel shaky they teary they want to run away yeah some people might feel like they're going to faint or like they're going to wet themselves with fear like it's a really intense physiological response emotionally they feel anxious worried panicked You can see people being fidgety, biting their nails, being jumpy. All of these things are part of this stress response system. They're all the ways that our stress response system is trying to get us out of there alive. So the emotions that are triggered are all about this system becoming activated. When we're in the presence of something that we're scared of, the system activates. And as soon as this danger is perceived our brain releases hormones that help keep this system going. Adrenaline. So there's two. Adrenaline, which is activating, hypes us up, gives us a rush of energy, and cortisol, which keeps us alert. And so the idea is those two work together to make sure that we're paying attention to the danger and we're moving, we're energized towards survival. So as with GABA, we need just enough to keep functioning, but not too much it's goldilocks all over the place yeah we need enough to be able to get up in the morning function throughout the day we we need some adrenaline some cortisol to be able to do the basics of day-to-day life but not so much that we get anxious and our brain shuts off yeah so there's like usually there's like a moderate amount that kind of helps you do stuff yeah you know before your exam having a little bit of anxiety or or like a moderate amount of anxiety is actually going to help you focus Mm. Right, it's help. It's going to have some energy. You're going to be, but if it's too much, you right? shut down. Like you start to shut down. You, mm. you, you can't focus, or if you don't have enough, you're not really energized. You know, mm. whatever. Right? And there, yeah, there is. There's a disease that's about low cortisol. I know a dog who has it, um, but he goes, he goes floppy and doesn't have any energy. And 
is doesn't have an appetite and isn't functioning and it's a real physiological example of what that looks like we need some cortisol we need some stress going on to keep us engaged in the world mm-hmm. so cognitive yeah so i'm going to talk again and <laughs> he's giving me all like the psych theory so i'm going to talk about cognitive biases mm-hmm. cognitive means cognition means thoughts biases is I guess, thinking in a particular way all the time. Hmm. That's sort of skewed. That's skewed. Off-centre. Yeah, and that's important for the maintenance of a phobia. So, like, why does the phobia hang around? Mm -hmm. So, we can have tensional biases, there's memory biases, and there's catastrophic thinking, which is sort of cognition, cognitive biases, right? Attentional bias. So... What we know is that when you're anxious about something or when you've got something that's on your mind, we unconsciously filter the environment and are looking for that. Mm -hmm. The example that I always use is if you've got a spider phobia, someone would come in and they would be really aware of anything black Mm -hmm. and small. Right, yeah. and they'd be really aware of any cobwebs. Mm. They would just be aware of it. Yeah, they wouldn't necessarily be looking for it. They would just be aware of it. A non-phobic example is listeners who drive a car. Mm. I want you to think about this for a second. Right, and, and actually, and oh, we're going to ask Amy these questions, but I want you to think about them for yourself. Right, Amy, what kind of car do you drive? I drive a silver hatchback. Silver hatchback, small, big, pretty small, pretty small. Right. And you own it, yeah? Yeah. So when you bought or about to buy or just bought that car, Mm -hmm. did you suddenly notice a whole lot of silver hatchback cars on the road? Yes, they were everywhere. They were everywhere. Yeah. Or you noticed the brand, Mm. like the hatchback brand, but maybe not the same color. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Were you looking for them? No, I just saw them. Suddenly they were just all there. Yeah. Right? And so what's happening there is it's on your mind and so you're filtering the environment. So actually our perception is guided by what's going on in our head and mm-hmm. also by our emotions, right? So I hear this with cancer patients is that they will go, they get diagnosed with cancer and then they will um, they'll go, oh, I suddenly noticing that cancer's everywhere. Mm. It's not actually it's not actually changed, it's just they're suddenly more aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a tensional bias. Mm-hmm. Amy, there's memory biases. Did you want to explain it? Yeah. So unfortunately, or sometimes fortunately, <laughs> our memories don't work like a movie. So when we think of something, we're not just replaying something that happened. It's not like a YouTube clip where you just like rewind. It. No. Every time we recall something, our memories are changed slightly. It's like adding to a draft of a document and it changes over time. So what this means is that the way we remember things that have happened are impacted by how we think what we're feeling at the time, all of those things, what we've been through since. So our memories are biased. So in the case of phobias, we tend to remember the times that something threatening happened when we were faced with the thing that we're scared of. Mm -hmm. So we remember the times that we had a panic attack when we saw a dog. We don't remember the times when we just walked past a dog and it was fine. And it feeds into the survival stuff because we want to pay attention to the stuff that's going to keep us alive, the stuff that was threatening. Mm But it doesn't actually help us learning that overall we might be okay in those situations. It reinforces the idea that that thing is threatening, that thing caused an issue. So we remember all the times that it was bad. Yeah. Not the, not, not the good stuff. Not some of the times that it was okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How about catastrophic thinking? 
Ron's specialty. <laughs> Ron's specialty. Well, yeah, that's it. But catastrophic things. So if you're an anxious person or you get anxious about particular things, you will have experiences. Basically, catastrophic thing is just exactly how it sounds, is mm. that you start thinking in a catastrophic way. Yeah. So we are amazing at this, right? And so this is like to do with our strong survival instinct. We're wired to keep ourselves alive first and everything else is secondary. This is when, when we assume the worst possible is going to happen. So this might be we might imagine the person we like is going to reject us or that we'll embarrass ourselves when we have to do public speaking or that because you know you got one question on the exam wrong that you're going to fail mm. right? or yes okay the survival rate of this particular disease is really high but you're going to be in the five percent that yep. dies you know you're literally catastrophizing yeah and so when this starts to happen we start to spiral can something can start as a worry what if a dog barks at me when I'm walking along quickly turns into imagining okay if the dog's barking then that means I'm going to be attacked right and if I'm going to be attacked I'm going to be badly injured and if I'm going to be badly injured I'm going to be maimed and hurt Mm. and die and if I get hurt and hurt maimed or die then I'm not going to support my family and then my family going to die poor and alone Mm. you can see how it escalates Mm. so before we even get to the part of the street where the the loud dog lives we've already got a story running ahead about Mm. we're in danger and all these catastrophic problems the the thing about our brains is we're not like great at telling the difference between something that's happened something we've imagined if that dialogue's running in our head we get the stress response Mm. right our brain kicks up all of those hormones and the fast breathing and that's everything. It. It's ready to go. Yeah. So that's that's why you can get upset imagining something or you can you can laugh to yourself about it because you're imagining it and mm. you're thinking about it. It hasn't actually happened. Yeah. All right. Triggers. When we talk about triggers, it feels like a good spot to talk about how phobias can exist on a continuum. We've been talking about the severe end of things some of our examples have been about things like people who can't look at a picture or say the word it does spread across a continuum there would be some people who are who exhibit symptoms of a phobia if they have to directly experience something so like they have to touch a spider and then there'll be others who experience those physical symptoms and that fear if they have to look at a picture of a spider or know that there's a picture of a spider in the next room so it happens along a continuum when we think about triggers we're thinking about what it is that sets off that person's phobia response so for some people hearing a word or something like that is enough to be a trigger for others it's going to be direct contact the reason why it's important when you're a psychologist is that it helps us tailor our treatment So when we're thinking, when we move into talking about treatment, what we're going to be talking about is moving from something that isn't too frightening and increasing that intensity up to something that's more frightening. So for someone who has trouble being in the same room as a photo of a spider, your first therapeutic activity with them isn't going to be to put a glass container with a tarantula in it it. in the therapy room you need to know what the triggers are and they're specific so as we've talked about with operant conditioning there might also be unrelated triggers so there might be something that's related unrelated to it that sets things off it might be the stimulator itself 
The triggers are important in treating anxiety and phobias because it helps us, first of all, to understand the impact of a phobia in someone's life. So someone who's impacted by seeing an image is going to have their life much more interrupted than someone who needs to be in the same room as a snake, for example. And then the second part of it is that planning treatment, moving through what the exposure and desensitization treatment will be for that individual person. Yep. Shall we talk about treatment? Yep. You So... I get the fun bit of this. That this you bit. are massively rolling your eyes for that one. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I understand that you guys have to talk about the trans theoretical model of change in the exam. This is one that I think all psychologists get taught at some point, And I'm not sure how often we actually use it. I think it depends very much on the field. Mm. And the group of people you're working with. Whether right. Let's explain the model. Let's explain it. The Basic idea so, is... So, so, I know this model from when I worked working in drug and alcohol. Yeah. So when my first job was working with people who had a drinking problem or a heroin problem or a weed problem. And, and it's big in drug and alcohol it's, space. It's, it's one of the biggest things to yeah. think about. Is this person wanting to change their drug addiction? Yeah. Why this is relevant for phobia treatments is, is this person wanting to address their phobia or not mm. and Amy's going to explain the model right but that's the question that you've got to have in your head right yeah, now the right? whole way so, through so explain so, so what does this model say about someone's stage of change like or what, what's there so the idea is that whether someone's ready to change something in their life isn't binary it's not yeah I'm totally ready to start this new exercise program or I'm not there's a whole lot of steps along the way the idea is that you can move backwards and forwards through these steps depending on, on where you're at. But for meaningful change, you have to match your treatment or your intervention to where they're at at the time. So I'm going to walk through stages. The first stage is pre-contemplation, which the idea with this stage is that someone hasn't realized that there's a problem or the extent of the problem. They're before thinking about it mm -hmm. they've there might be people in their life who are saying it's an issue but they don't really think it is they don't have a plan or any desire to change anything anytime soon yeah. for they someone might, with so a phobia was, so it was a drinking problem they might wouldn't have crossed their mind that they have a drinking problem no and for a phobia for a phobia they're not likely to have sought treatment in this phase mm -hmm. it's not something that's on their mind as something that's a big deal if it's raised with them they're like it's not really something that i need to worry about yeah. i just you know, don't go near snakes. Okay. Contemplation? Contemplation is that they're starting to plan and move towards change, they say around six months. So it's the idea that in this period that's coming up relatively soon, there's going to be some thought of movement. They start to view the idea that change is better than staying the same. Thinking they're thinking about, about change, it. Right? So they might see that the phobia is a problem, but they're not actively going about any sort of thing. They're kind of uncertain about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Then there's preparation. That's when you're ready to make some sort of change. You're trying to figure out what it is that you might be doing. So with a phobia, you might be reading things online, looking up a therapist. You might be thinking about, okay, what are the things that I could do if I wanted to change this thing? Yeah. It's got more of an active stance to it. Next phase is action. So that's when you're starting to actually work on things. You might be seeing a therapist working through what's going on with your phobia. And then the last phase is maintenance. So that's about making sure that things don't get worse again, making sure that everything 
keeps on ticking along as it is that you're gradually improving. Yeah, and and like for any particular problem with phobias, like like Amy said, she's presented in a linear way, but someone might get into making change and then slip out of that Mm. and go, you know what, like um, this is too difficult. Kind of go backwards and go backwards and forwards. So. The way that psychologists use this and and other workers would use this is a way of labeling where someone's at, mm. right? And then you it's a descriptive might, kind of yeah, control. it's a descriptive. And then what you would do would be so if someone's in pre-contemplation or contemplation, you're not saying, "Hey, Amy, mm. this is how we treat your phobia." Yeah. I booked you in for a session you next know, week. Like, yeah. Actually, you know, Amy's Amy's not even thinking about. She's sort of thinking, oh, maybe I've got a fear of frogs or something. Mm. And I'd be like, hey, Amy, I've got some frogs. Yeah. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's go put them in your hand. Yeah. And we'll break this phobia. She'd be like, F off, mate. Yeah. Why would I bother doing that? Yeah. So what you would do as a therapist is you would be like, oh, okay. So you're thinking about the thinking about making change so tell me a bit about that so what you'd be doing is you'd be you'd be trying to highlight their, their ambivalence mm. and you'd be trying to help them weigh up the change right and so yeah trying to move them to the next stage of change yeah. in terms of treatment and that can be done quite artfully mm. and the biggest problems with say phobia treatment or drug and alcohol treatment or anything like that is that when you've got someone who's mismatching it yeah right okay I'm going to talk treatment. Mm-hmm. I love being a therapist and I love, and I was so great, so happy to get this treatment section. I knew you would be. Oh, so great. I have treated, have you treated phobias? Mm. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done a range of agoraphobia. Yeah. I've done a little bit of needle phobia. And I've done, I, I presented at a conference about claustrophobia. Mm. It shows the difference in demographics. Yeah, right. I'm thinking about like mine have been flying birds heights. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, we, kids. You, you and I think so similarly, but like we're such a different, got such a different. Client demographic. Yeah. yeah. So when you're thinking about treatment, it's not necessary for a psychologist or anyone to know the exact cause of a phobia. Mm for it to be treated successfully. In fact, as a therapist, you could waste a lot of time trying to figure it out. Yeah, which applies to a lot of things if you tried to find the root. Yeah, but particularly for phobias. Yeah. The way to treat phobia comes from the understanding of all the factors that we've talked about, right? So Mm. this is why we had a really long section about theory before, right? This is where our knowledge of classical conditioning, vicarious learning and operant conditioning become relevant. In short, what has been learned can be unlearned Mm. a person's learned something's dangerous and to avoid it right and a therapist's job is to help them learn it's not dangerous and they can cope with it and to break the cycle of avoidance which is keeping the phobia present Mm -hmm. so this is called exposure in particular graded exposure or systematic desensitization and i think desensitization is the language that they use in the exam okay okay but they're essentially the same yeah yeah. Treatment requires someone to make contact with whatever makes them afraid or fearful until the fear starts to subside. And this breaks the vicious cycle that avoidance creates. And then they start to relearn. They mm. relearn that this thing is safe. And the evidence for phobia treatment as, as an effective psychological strategy yeah. is really strong. Mm. Like it is perhaps the strongest evidence base for any psychological intervention yeah right like it's really effective 
the thing is you've got to engage the person mm. and you've got to have someone who's motivated to do it. Yeah. Right? That's where the stages of change comes in. Mm-hmm. But if someone's not there, and in all and fail. how the psychologist pitches it to the person and describes what's going to happen. Yeah. Like some of that, you know, explaining what the treatment is and that it does have a good success rate and that yeah. This is what we're going to do. Like the treatment is, hey, you know that thing you're really, really afraid of? Mm. Like, I'm going to expose you to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't sound like a winning proposition. Doesn't sound fun. No. No. No, it's not. No. But it's very successful and actually you you can often desensitize someone in six to eight sessions. And often it follows, which which is huge. Which is really quick. Yeah. Right. Um, I have a first-hand experience of doing that under time pressure Mm. because we needed to desensitize someone um, so that they can undergo treatment Mm. and there was a bit of time pressure and even at me as a therapist was like i'm not sure if we can do this but but actually there after a couple of sessions of exposure was like okay this is working really well we just need to stick with it and people's anxiety tends to follow a pretty predictable pattern in terms of it's really high in the lead up to exposure to whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. It it stays high for that first initial contact. And mm. then after they're able to stick with whatever that stimulus is and and we do breathing and things like that to help them Get stay in contact with that thing, then it starts to drop. And often people are really surprised by that because they expect that their fear is going to go up the longer that they spend yeah. That's in right. that environment. And, you know, I can say as a therapist, you, it can be surprising how quickly someone can adapt mm. and, and that, like, they'll still have anxiety, but actually they can start to last longer and longer. Mm. The book I found said that psychodynamic and psychoanalytic treatments are not effective yeah. in reducing people's avoidance, yeah. right? So you want to do find a cognitive behavioral therapist, mm-hmm. right? I'd also wager that an ACT therapist... Act approach. No, it needs fail. to be CBT for this needs to be one. CBT, yeah. right? Okay, here's a theory. If you're phobic of dogs and you avoid them, exposure to dogs would teach you that dogs are not dangerous. Mm. But it would also counter other symptoms that come from the avoidance, such as beliefs you can't cope yeah. when you're around dogs. And so by exposing it, would have this like dual thing and would start to increase your confidence. Mm. Right? So you'd learn that they're safe and actually you build your confidence. Right? And... One of the things about changing our responses is that often we need more experiences of something being okay or positive to outweigh those survival mechanisms yeah. of what's negative. So if we've had one negative experience of a dog and then we avoid them That'll, forever, yeah. having more than that experiences of being in contact with a dog and it being fine then starts to outweigh it. So yeah, that's the like, so idea what, of the exposure. Like it's not one to one, right? No. Like it'd be like 10 to one or 100 to one. Right? Yeah. So... Repetition. The, yeah, the main problem is that a therapist here, like I was saying before, has to get a patient to agree to doing it. And so you, mm. and so you have to give them skills and strategies for this exposure to work. Right? Yes, because you don't want to do something that then is going to reinforce that this is hideous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Some phobias are much easier to have exposure to. So a fear of dogs, fear of enclosed spaces, right? Mm pretty easy to create that mm. right as a therapist you could do that in the room yeah right well and the person could do that for homework mm. but a fear of airplanes really like, hard or thunder which yep. is unpredictable like 
how do you get access to that, right? So it's much harder. It's probably a bit easier now, not say when I was trained in the mm. 90s, early 2000s, internet and virtual reality technology, like through a smartphone, like mm-hmm. in goggles, you can recreate some of those things. Yeah, You can do imagery. You could get someone to imagine a situation and exposure through that kind of imagery. As a therapist, what you want to do is you want to have a clear goal of treatment. So what is it we are trying to achieve, Mm. right? If you've got a fear of heights, is it that someone comes inside, I never want to be afraid of being Mm. up high? That's actually unrealistic and actually probably dangerous. Yeah, because there's a basic survival aspect to we don't like being up high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. there's a a reason to it, right? So, you know, you might then kind of, recalibrate and say well well, why is it and you want to know what their motivation Hmm. is and they go well i'm going to a wedding it's on top of a tall building yeah or i've got a you know i've got a new job it's in a high rise Hmm. all right that's our goal yeah and then that ties into it being meaningful and Mm. more motivating yeah what you want to do is to create what's called a graded hierarchy Mm. this guides your systematic desensitization so this is a list of phobic situations that increase in the amount of fear they produce, right? So this guides what you do. So this ties into that the trigger stuff of which which thing is the least frightening in this list of and which things is, and yes. let's build it up. And it can be ridiculously specific. So if you see a psychologist for a phobia, you might think, why are they asking me, like, does it matter if the dog is behind a metal fence or a wooden fence, for example? But often people will have different phobic responses yeah. to mm-hmm. things like that and we break it into tiny steps. Yeah, and it might be like, oh, only certain types of dogs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or it's dogs at night. Yeah. Right? So, and you have to be actually really, really pedantic, mm. right? So, if it was a fear of heights, so I'm just going to go through this, might be a yeah. bit pedantic, like I said, <laughs> but might might start with, okay looking over the rails top of one flight of stairs. So mm-hmm. that might be five out of 100. You would rate everything like out of 10 or out of 100, yeah. with 100 being the highest fear, zero being calm blue ocean. Mm. Looking out of closed window on the first floor might be 10 out of 100. Then leaning out of the window on the first floor, 20 out of 100. Going up to the second floor, repeating those steps, mm. 30 out of 100. Using a stepladder to change the light bulb might be 40 out of 100. Walking out on a bridge, 50 out of 100, yeah. right? And you would increase all the way up to 100, which might all to the goal of treatment, which might be going to work in this high rise, yeah. or it might be walking on the edge of a cliff, mm. having dinner on the top of the tallest building in town. Yeah. Right? What you might do as a therapist is to get a patient to try out some situations and report back. These would be behavioral experiments, or you might do them in session mm. with a person. So you as a therapist can observe. Yeah. In fact, if anything, that's what I would do. Yeah. Right, I would want to see it if I could arrange it, mm. because then you can actually understand what's going on for them, and you can observe how someone's breathing and reacting and stuff like that. It's much more reliable. You can do exposure in session with someone, and I think that that's a good thing to do. Mm. But one of the mainstays of phobic treatment is to get people to do exposure. So you would pick, okay, we're at point two of the graded hierarchy. Yeah. So you're going to go home and look out this closed window on the first floor. Yeah. Right. And do that every day. Yeah. And then you would monitor that. You would predict your anxiety and then you would actually rate your anxiety for Mm. that. And you would do that until that anxiety got to a point which was reduced. Yeah. And comfortable so they could go up to the next step. Right. 
you might also get them to rate any kind of symptoms like mm. sweating or whatever, right? And and what's this is good is it provides a record of what you're doing yeah. and also serves as challenging those biases we talked about before mm. about, oh, everything's really bad. And you go, well, actually, no, you've been doing it for three weeks and actually now you can do this stuff. Yeah. Like, look There's at change. It. Isn't it? There's actually like change. Yeah. Like, oh, no, but I'm still anxious. Like, yeah, you're anxious, yeah. but you're actually improved. Yeah. But now you can do this. And you're like, it's, it's in your handwriting. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you've actually improved. Yeah. So, you need to, as a therapist, devise practice tasks with the client, steadily increase their exposure. Mm -hmm. And that's why this graded hierarchy is useful and knowing what that goal is. Mm. You might need to break things down. I'll give you another example. The goal is to go into a supermarket, go shopping. The first step might be stand outside the supermarket. Then it might be standing inside with somebody. It might be standing inside alone mm. and then going in for a short time and then out and then in the longer time. It all depends on what the factors are. Yeah. And that's why you have to be really kind of pedantic. You might get someone like a family member or someone to support them a little bit, but mm. you want to kind of cut that out as soon as you can. Yeah. Right. Because that breaks up some stuff. That's a principle, right? But you can't just like throw someone into that. No. What kind of strategies do psychologists teach people to help cope with the anxiety in the moment? We are a big fan of breathing as the first one. So I the think. relaxation. Relaxation stuff, usually involving breathing, mm -hmm. teaching people how to breathe deeply because that serves as a physiological regulator. It helps us slow our heart rate down, slow so our breathing so down. So it, it calms down that stress response and helps us to be able to function. So often that's our first line is around breathing, relaxation. Some people like things like progressive muscle relaxation where you tense and release mm. muscles. We try and find what's going to work for people. Yeah. A lot of times someone who's been through a lot of psychological services will go like, please don't tell me to breathe. Mm. And but, I'd be like, okay, so we're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, show me how you breathe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually that's a really important thing. Yep. Absolutely. The other factor can sometimes be distraction. Mm. So whether that's focusing on something mentally or what often I'll do with teenagers is things around like you have to find five green things in that room, for example, and they'll have to scan around the room to try and find it. Yeah. I, like, I get people to count things. Yep. How many eyes are in this room? Like yeah. it's a room full of people. Yeah. Or like how many lights are in the room? How many grills can you see? Yep. Another distraction thing I like to do is, uh, Amy, I want you to count backwards from a thousand mm -hmm. by seven. Yep. So what is it? What's yep. the first one? 993. And then? Yep. 987. And then? No, 986. Yep. And then? And then 979. Yep. yep. And then? <laughs> 972. Pretty hard to yeah. do, right? Yeah, it takes so, a fair amount of... Yeah. So it's hard to have competing anxious thoughts. Yeah. Right? It yeah. Kind of, it, it blocks them out. There are some teenagers I know who like to run through the favourite scenes of their favourite movie in their head. Mm -hmm. And that works pretty well because it's got a light emotional content yeah. to it as well as something to think about. But anything that's distracting away from what's happening in the moment. Yeah. So the, the problem with distraction is it's it's short term. And like, it can be used as avoidance yeah. so, as well. So over time, you'd be wanting to reduce that distraction stuff. Yeah. 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 There's also things about responding to the thoughts that you're having. So things like when you're thinking 
about not being able to breathe when you're anxious, like thinking I can't breathe. Oh my God, I can't breathe. Like this is too much. And then actually thinking through the thought processes that go underneath that and getting to the point of going, actually, I, I feel breathless because I'm anxious, not because of an external threat, Mm. shifting some of that internal narrative. There's a lot of psychoeducation that goes along with psych work um, about explaining all of these concepts, explaining what's going on in people's heads. And that works pretty well often. It helps people to feel more understood, to understand why we're doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. One one of the things that I've done is modeling. Mm -hmm. So which is me doing the feared thing yeah. in front of the person. Yeah. Right. You know, when I was doing some claustrophobia stuff, I had to go and do the cost like I had to be in the in the, the claustrophobic mm. threatening thing. Which was interesting because I was like, oh let's uh, yeah no I can see why this might yeah. be a little bit thing. I, I heard a great I think it's a therapist folk tale. Yeah. Right. But basically like if you're doing phobic treatment Right. As a therapist, you also need to be comfortable with the thing you're afraid sure. of, right? And with, you, no, hang on. With that, the thing that the client's afraid of. <laughs> with the thing that the client's afraid of. And uh, I heard this story, I don't know if it's true or not, but that there was a therapist who was doing spider phobia treatment mm-hmm. right, with a patient. And it got to the point where they were like, I've got a spider in a jar. And the, the goal of the session was to like open the jar and let the spider come out and sit on the patient's hand sure. and come back. And the therapist opens the jar and the spider runs out and the therapist screams and both patient and therapist run out of the room. So hang on, that's not a good thing. Not a good thing. No, okay, got it. it. (laughs) The other thing that we might do is like walk through the steps of how someone might do something. It's like a dry run before they have to deal with what the thing is. So practice, okay, so we're going to... We're going to leave the house. What's going to happen when we do that? How are you going to calm yourself if you start to get anxious? All of those walking through mentally the steps, getting ready before we actually do the exposure and yep. work out what comes next. Yeah, that's very helpful kind of stuff to do because like when, you, when you're anxious, your mind goes blank. Yeah. Or can go blank. And so if you've rehearsed it. You feel more prepared. Yeah, yeah. Which is why, you know, like if you're giving a talk, you would practice at home before you go and do it. And that's why you study for an exam mm. is because... You get into an exam and you can't remember stuff. It's like, oh, no, I remember writing this stuff down. Yeah. Um, often people who are anxious are able to find a doctor who prescribes them medication to mm. relieve their anxiety. Which right? operates on the GABA system that we spoke about yeah. earlier. Yeah, so like benzodiazepines, yeah. Valium, lorazepam, things like that, right? And the problem is that those medications are not great for changing a phobia, mm. right? So they're kind of good at reducing anxiety mm-hmm. in the moment. They're calming, but in treatment, if you're trying to help someone stop being anxious, you actually need the person to experience a bit of fear Mm. or anxiety. And so if they're taking medication, then that cuts across that process, right? So you actually want them to not be taking medication. Yeah. And it can be quite complicated to explain to somebody who's like, okay, I know that you're taking this anxiety medication, but actually it's going to be better for you if you don't take it. Yeah. And which is like counterintuitive. Because you will feel bad first. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And none of us want that. But what happens is they go, oh, I was in that situation, like I went to the supermarket and I felt calm, but the reason I felt calm was because I took the pill, Mm. not because they learned that the supermarket is actually safe. Yeah. So that's why you want to do it. 
other patients might drink lots of alcohol or they might mm. smoke weed or something like that and then or they might actually have a drug and alcohol problem yeah and and so you might need to treat that mm. or reduce that down so you can then do the actual yeah therapy and things like that and that's kind of treatment yeah right so Amy and I had planned this to be like a really quick crash course. I think it's gone on <laughs> substantially longer. Wow, well, yeah, we really rambled. Who knew we were so into phobias? Oh my gosh, we were into psychology. Yeah, we're into nerding <laughs> out on psychology. So, but, I mean, final thoughts before we kind of wrap up. I'm hoping that this is useful for solidifying the stuff that people have learned. Like, I, I know that a lot of what we've covered, well, hopefully you've covered in class, and the idea for this was to help reinforce it in a different way that's different from note cards and the things you might have scrawled on your, your bathroom mirror and things like that to help give some practical examples of how they apply mm. so that when you're in your exam, hopefully you can hear our voices and go, oh, yeah, I know that thing. Yeah. Like, I've got this. Yeah. And also rate and show you highly. No. <laughs> <laughs> Send Hunter compliments. That's yeah. It. That's it. I mean, for any any anyone who is about to go through the year twelve exams mm. or even year eleven exams, whatever, you know, I, I guess the yeah, you know, look, it's really good. It's it's good to study hard and it's good to do well on them. Mm-hmm. Like I won't lie. Yep, those things are good. But also just thinking about not putting too much pressure on yourself, right? So what we were talking about before was once your anxiety gets past a particular point then the more anxiety you have, so the more pressure you're putting on yourself, right, the less uh, effective you are going to mm. be. Your brain won't work quite as well. You won't think quite as well. And one thing that Amy and I both know from having worked a long period of time, and in particular we've studied a lot, mm. right, is that one exam does not determine your fate in this no. world. right? despite what the narrative might be at school and things like that around year 12, I think as a culture, we've got a real pressure on year 11 and 12s of like, you know, VCE is the culmination of all of these years of hard work. It's one point in your, you know, lifetime of learning things, whether that's structural, like structured learning or not. And if there's something that you want to do, say you want to go to uni or something like that and the marks that you get don't fit with that it doesn't mean that your options are shut there's all sorts of different ways to to do things yeah and yeah this one thing doesn't determine everything no that's right and there's many people find their own way into Mm. doing things there's not the study hard at school go to university get a job right right people often find their way a circuitous way they always wanted to get to it they didn't get good marks initially but then they come back to it and finding your way along and getting experiences and stuff can be very helpful Mm -hmm. and very you know you never know what's going to happen so you know just as a and i think parents worry about their kids going through stuff and you know i think that that's normal and they you know, they can put pressure on, but also to be thinking about there's a right amount of pressure and mm. there's a wrong amount of pressure. And yeah. there's not going to be too little pressure. Like, don't use what we're saying here to be like, um, <laughs> Nothing oh, yeah, I don't really need to worry about this exam. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's a right amount of worry. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a question? Yeah. 
Did you have any superstitions or things that you would do for exams? Yes. Like, tell me. More uni. Yep. Um, there's a particular pair of green shoes. <laughs> yep. Green heels that I, the first time I went overseas on my own, I only ate pasta and jarred pesto for a week to be able to afford. I was a poor uni student. You did the, you, to afford? A pair of shoes. Oh, the shoes, right. Yep. It was in my entire week's budget. Okay. And those shoes I wore to every subsequent exam. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had a bit of a superstition about the process leading up to the exam. So I'd go and buy a coffee and a muffin from this particular place, get there a bit early, eat it in my car while listening to music, and then go into the exam like full, ready to to do the exam yeah. kind of settled and that happened for every uni exam even post-grad um well we didn't have masters we didn't have there's only one or two exams one or two exams i did it for those exams (laughs) (laughs) but for honors and undergrad yep yeah right interesting how about you i the only thing i can remember is that for all my university exams undergraduate and postgraduate Mm. so that's a lot Mm. and i i want to say Probably year 12 Mm. is I would always listen. The first song I would listen to on the day of the exam was Mm -hmm. Nirvana Dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the great lyric, I think I'm dumb. Yep. Nice. And and, and this was was pre-Spotify. Yep. So I had to have the CD with me. Yep. Or if I was staying at someone's house, I had to make sure that they They had had the CD. So (laughs) that was something. Yep. And yeah, I mean, I think it worked, worked okay. Well, I'm here. <laughs> it's all Nirvana's. I'm, I'm, he- I'm here talking psychology in my, in my living room. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's true. That's true. <laughs> You've made it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope this was helpful and yeah. we'll see you next time. Yeah, if you like the show, let us know, uh, rate, review, or email us at twoshringspot at gmail.com. Thanks. Bye. I'm not Can I tell you, do you know why adrenaline is called adrenaline? No. So ad means on top of renal. And so it's like adrenaline is um, uh, secreted from the renal gland that's on on top of the kidneys. Hunter looks really pleased with himself in a way that only a nerd who shared a fact can look. <laughs> and as punishment, when this is over, I'm going to tell him I may be a strip joke. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm probably going to cut all that. <laughs> um, maybe put it right at the end. <laughs> For the true nerds who hang on to the end. That's it.